Hello and welcome to another episode of Film Spill, a movie night podcast with your hosts, Chelsea and Jackie. Film Spill, if you already don't know, is a podcast that comes out every other Thursday and we talk about a movie by a female filmmaker every episode. We also discuss women in the entertainment industry in general and we play slumber party games, spill entertainment gossip and get to know each other and our guests. This week, it is just me and Chelsea, but we have a very special episode for you. This is our 13th episode, Spectacular. We have a spine-chilling urban legend, and we're also going to be talking about Nia DaCosta's Candyman. So since Candyman is about an urban legend... We have decided to make this segment into a story time based on a legend. I was able to find this urban legend that is based on Turnbull Canyon. So if anyone has heard of Turnbull Canyon, has gone on a hike, because apparently people can go on a hike there. Oof, I would not do that. (laughs) No, I wouldn't either, especially hearing everything that's happened there. I know it's like there's certain things that you have to like test out for yourself. You know, kind of see, like, are you feeling the hauntedness of it? I know when I went to Salem, I wasn't feeling the hauntedness of it. But I did capture a picture that I'm kind of, like, spooked out about. And I don't know how to handle it. Ooh. But maybe I can go into it real quick because we can cut it out anyways. Yeah. Uh, So I captured a picture of a house. It's a popular, like, landmark in Salem. And we didn't know that there was a garden behind it. But this bicyclist. They were up really early bicycling along Salem, but they were kind enough to let us know, like, hey, there's more, like, come check this out. So we were kind of creeped out because it's like this random person is telling us to come check out more of the house. Mm. Like, you you shouldn't do that, but we did it anyways. So we went back, and there was a whole garden, and apparently he was talking to his friends, and they were talking about how spooky the house is, that no one is able to sell it because of how scared people get when they get into the house. So I was kind of spooked out about it. So I took a picture, and in the picture, all the blinds are down, right? In the first picture, I took back-to-back pictures, obviously. So in the second picture, one of the blinds is up. Whoa. It's so creepy. Hold on, maybe I can, like, just show you right now. (laughs) Like, is it me, or, like, is the blind down? I was kind of spooked. I was like, hopefully I don't see someone in the window. Oh my god. Was the house empty? That house is empty and it literally says Saturday at 721 because like I said, it was like, I just kept clicking. Like Jackie, me just showing you right now, I'm getting chills. Oh no. (laughs) So you see someone in the window too. Like in the first Mm. one, you see someone in the window because you see someone white and then they're not there because I'm looking at it now and all of them were taken at 721 a.m. We can also share this with our Instagram followers. Guys, follow at Film Spill Pod for the latest. Um, so in the first picture of this house, the middle window on the second floor, the blind is definitely down. Yeah. And then in the subsequent picture, like this at the same time, but right after, 
there's no window covering on that second floor. But I don't see anybody in the window. Did you see anybody in the window? Yeah, okay, so in the first picture, you see that white thing on the side? Oh, what the fuck is that? I know, but do you see it's gone in the second and third fucking picture? Yeah, it's just empty, um, they're just empty windows now. That's so fucked up. (laughs) What the hell? I know, and I just realized, like, the white right now. At first, I just thought it was the blind that went up. No, there's someone in the fucking window. It could be a reflection. I could, but I don't know. I'm zooming in. Like, I'm... I don't know. I will say, too, and I don't want to be a skeptic, but the first picture is taken Mm -hmm. from a slightly different angle than the other two pictures. See? Because, like, the first picture of the house is toward, like, the right corner of the frame, and the other two is a little more centered. But Hmm. I... It is... There is something unsettling going on here. It might be. You might be right about the corners. But the the blind, I don't know how to explain the blind. Right, because the blind, it's like, I mean, unless there's someone in there. And they, at that moment you took the picture, they pulled it up. But, like, you said there was nobody in the house. So, like, mm-hmm. what the fuck? <laughs> but I feel like we should get into the um, Turnbull Canyon story. Yes. Okay. The main story is from... The campus newspaper for Whittier College, right? I got more information on that website, but I found it first on Thrillist. Okay. This Turnbull Canyon has been, like, rumored to have had a lot of deaths happen there, such as, like, a plane crash that apparently happened and didn't happen. Wait, let's talk about that. What the hell? Yeah, so apparently... It's a plane crash that happened, but there's no documents of the plane crash actually happening. But there were people who were living in the area who saw it happen. Oh, wow. They're, like, trying to do a cover-up or something. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And when you look at the website, the Quaker campus, it tells you about the people who actually died. I don't know if they have been killed there or their bodies have just been left there. I know some person got decapitated there wow yeah and this is um for those of you listening who don't know much about like the LA area this is outside of LA they say between Whittier and City of Industry Hollywood adjacent um but Mm -hmm. that's super creepy it has a macabre past filled with rumors of an insane asylum, ghostly sightings, and a tragic plane crash. Mm-hmm. They say it's also like a gate of hell, like gates to hell. Like a portal or something? <laughs> yeah. So it says, on October 12, 2002, 17-year-old Gloria Linda Gaxiola was shot in the head on Turnbull Canyon Road before being dragged by a car four miles to Hacienda Heights. Her body was found at the crossroads of Hacienda Boulevard and Kalima Road. People were arrested for her murder, but the following year, there was another person, Christine Martinez, who was stabbed and slashed. Oh, but she survived, I guess, because it says Martinez knew her attackers and told the investigators she thought they were her friends. 
Oh, yeah. Maybe. Stabbed and slashed. Oh, and left to die. So she was left to die, but maybe she did. Oh, but this is... The, okay, so now below it tells you about the unidentified woman's body who was found hidden in 2011. That's recent. That was like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Apparently members of the Ku Klux Klan have been known to be there too. Apparently there's evil vibes. A lot of <laughs> satanic rituals that happen there. Um, just some crazy stuff. Don't go to Turnbull Canyon, guys. That's just <laughs> all I have to say after this. Like, whatever's there is not not worth it. <laughs> that could be a film, though. The Hike to Turnbull Canyon. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, speaking of the supernatural and not poking your nose, I guess, where it shouldn't be, we can talk about... Candyman by Nia DaCosta. That does just that. The main character pokes around where he shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, and people tell him, like, no way, I'm not, we're not going to mess with that. And he, he still does, and other people do as well. Before we get into this week's episode, there is a content warning. This film and our discussion will contain mentions of racial violence against Black people, suicide, and some gore. We totally understand if that's not something you want to hear about right now, so feel free to stop here. We will be back in two weeks with an episode on a totally different movie. Candyman is available to stream on Google Play, Prime Video, and Apple TV, and is, at the time of recording, still playing in theaters. This was your second viewing, right, of the film. What are your, I guess, initial thoughts or secondary thoughts? (laughs) I got to, I think, focus more on the fundamentals the second time around. Because the first time around, I just wanted to see how the movie played out. Like, I compared it to the first film. Because I watched the first film when I was young. And I always had an appreciation for Candyman and how scary it was. So... I know that there were sequels made after the first film that was made that flopped in the box office that were like totally not good. So I had high hopes because I know that Jordan Peele produced it and he helped co-write it as well. So, you know, I was more so excited about the movie coming out and just wanted to see like what it was all about. Then the second time, it's not like I had that excitement again. Like, I knew what was going to happen, and I knew what I loved about the film, so I was able to really dissect it piece by piece. I've only seen it once, and I hadn't seen, I still haven't seen the original Candyman film or either of the sequels, and really didn't know much of what to expect going into it. But I was interested in watching the film, after learning that Nia DaCosta was the, is the first black woman director to debut a film at number one at the US box office, which is enormous. I really enjoyed the film. I think it was very well made, you know, visually. And I think the acting was great and the dialogue and obviously the themes are, you know, very resonant. But like, I did have some stuff that I walked away story-wise where I was like a little bit confused or like stuff didn't quite add up for me. We can get into that later. But overall, just want to say 
I did really enjoy the film in case I ever sound too critical. Like, I think it's, I think it was very well done. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I remember when I first saw it in theaters, I was so excited to talk to you about it. So I was really hyped that you were like, let's watch this movie. I'm like, yeah, I'll watch it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like the only hesitation I had was that at first it wasn't available on streaming. And I want to make sure that we, you know, have movies available on streaming for people to watch. So it's just more convenient. I'm really glad that now it's on streaming, even though you do have to pay like $20 to stream. But, you know, it's comparable to a movie ticket. So, you know, I'm willing to do that. So this Candyman is actually based off of the first Candyman, but it's a sequel to it. So it continues on the story of the housing projects of Chicago's Caprini Green neighborhood, who were terrorized by a ghost story from a supernatural killer with a hook for a hand, who's easily summoned by those daring to repeat his name five times in a mirror. In present day, a decade after the last of the Caprini Towers were torn down, visual artist Anthony McCoy and his partner, gallery director Brianna Cartwright, move into a luxury loft condo in Caprini, now gentrified beyond recognition by upwardly mobile millennials. With Anthony's painting career on the brick of stalling, a chance encounter with the Caprini Green old-timer exposes Anthony to the tragically horrific nature of the true story behind Candyman. Anxious to maintain his status in the Chicago art world, Anthony begins to explore these macabre details in his studio, opening a door to a complex past that unravels his own sanity and unleashes a terrifying wave of violence that puts him on course with destiny. So, I know that you didn't watch the first film, and I haven't watched the first film in a minute. I know that they went over what happened, like the story of Caprini Green and the legacy that it had and what happened with Candyman and Helen. So that whole story happened in the beginning, like the first Candyman. So they're taking that story and putting it into this Candyman and having him be the baby who Helen is trying to save, which I think was brilliant. Because I'm so happy that they didn't recreate, like try to recreate the original Candyman. No. They took that story and they made it flow into like modern times. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting take because um, I did read through because my boyfriend and I watched this movie together and neither of us had seen the first Candyman film. So we were like a little bit confused at the end. Then we looked into, we read the plot summary of the first Candyman, which sounds amazing. I'd love to watch now. But uh, we were like, okay, so all that stuff with Helen, I mean, I figured it was from the first movie, but just that confirmation, and then he was, there was like a baby that she saved in that first film. And I think it's really interesting too that like, now it's set in this now gentrified neighborhood, because it's taking place 20 some years after the events of the first film. And that's just in itself an interesting setting. You know, I have some thoughts on, on the baby thing. I don't know if it was necessary. I kind of feel like 
some development exec was like, this would be really cool if he was the baby. And I'm like, I don't think we really need that. I think it overcomplicates things a little bit. But like, who am I to criticize Jordan Peele also? So, or, or anybody else? I think that's why they made him into the baby because it was the plot twist that you weren't expecting. And Jordan Peele is so known to do that plot twist. He did it in Get Out and he did it in Us. So it's like he had to do it in Candyman. He had to put that in like, let's make him the baby and (laughs) have it told towards the end of the story, which he normally does with a lot of his films. He waits for you to figure out any of it figure out why this is happening to him and why he's being targeted because you see the bee coming to him and sting him but Mm -hmm. the bee comes out of nowhere you know why does it start infecting him the way that it does and and so rapidly so it's like a lot of thought had to be put into like his development the guy who's supposed to be helping him who owns the laundromat turns out to be someone who's evil and kidnaps his girlfriend but then she gets spared her life because Candyman needs someone to let other people know that he's still alive mm-hmm. but is anthony still in there is mm-hmm. that also why she got saved you know what i mean yeah. so what is is anthony becoming another version of Candyman, or did he get sucked into Candyman? I kind of thought he got sucked in because we had that final scene or whatever where he says, does he say tell everyone? That's like his Mm -hmm. last line. And it's actually the face of the original Candyman. Um, Tony Todd. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so we see his face um, at the end. So I kind of, I interpreted it as like the Candyman is like a collective of like all these lost souls or all these souls that were unjustly killed like all these black men who died you know through racial violence but you know that's just my reading (laughs) i mean yeah you could be right towards the end of the film you start feeling some sympathy because you start realizing more of the story and you sympathize with the villain because of what he had to go through and why he ended up becoming that legend. Right. I mean, I think like there's unfinished business. Yeah, I, I think it was very cleverly done in a lot of ways. And I still have some questions or some things that I might have done differently where I, you know, assigned to the script or whatever. But, you know there might may also be things that I missed because I've only seen it once. I don't know about the original Candyman that much. So I, I'm coming at this from, you know, a place of ignorance in a way. Yeah, I, I don't know. For whatever reason, I thought the first one was scarier. People said <laughs> like, that. I read the reviews that said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it really freaked me out. Not saying that this film wasn't scary because it did have its scary moments. I would want to see the first one again so I can compare them. After I watched the movie, I like went into the bathroom and I'm like, I don't even want to look in the mirror. Like I was kind of scared, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's like when it's a supernatural and you can't control it and you can't see it, that's what makes it even scarier. For sure. Like the art gallery, how you weren't able to see him. Like, I don't remember 
you not being able to see him present. Like I thought he was going to appear. So the fact that it was supernatural and you could only see it through glass made it like more Mm. impactful. That's such a cool scene too. Like him dragging that guy by the ankle. Like he like cuts his like Achilles heel or whatever. And he's like Mm. dragging him. It's so scary, but it's also so cool. I was like, this is such an interesting concept and it shot so well. I wonder where it comes from. Now, I didn't go into depth with where this story originated from. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's a real legend or if it was made up for the film. I know that the first film and then, you know, obviously this film as well are based on a short story called The Forbidden by Clive Barker in his 1985 collection Books of Blood. So, like, that's as far as I know the origin of it, but it definitely could be based on, you know, another urban legend or something similar that's been around for a lot longer. So, as we have already mentioned... Nia DaCosta is the writer and director of Candyman. She is one of the writers. She's not the sole writer, but she is the sole director of Candyman. Her feature debut was Little Woods in 2018, which she wrote and directed. The film is a crime thriller starring Tessa Thompson and Lily James. Little Woods was well-received at the Tribeca Film Festival and was acquired by Neon in 2019, a production and distribution company which acquired Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Parasite. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, Neon is Neon is a pretty big name, at least recently. I mean, I haven't been paying a lot of attention to production and distribution companies. It's only recently that I started paying attention to them, but... Neon seems to have, you know, a pretty good library, you know, award-winning films and things like that. That's awesome. And you know what's crazy is that she's only made Little Woods as her, like, big feature until she was able to direct and write for Candyman. Yeah. I didn't know that she pitched to Jordan Peele for Candyman. Mmm. And she was the one of the few who were selected to actually go on and pitch, I think, for him. I guess they hit it off because she was, like, geeking out and, you know, letting him know, like, hey, I watch He and Peel. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, you know, she was such a huge fan, or she's still a huge fan of Jordan. So that, that was nice. Um, it's like a dream come true. She, she finds him as intriguing as, like, I find her as a director and writer she has like such an admiration for him as like a true artist which I give him credit like he really is he went from comedy to horror and he's good at both like he can yeah. he can do a lot you know he can, he's a diverse creator and that's what I really appreciate about him um, but besides besides Jordan Peele you know let's go back to Nia DaCosta <laughs> <laughs> So Candyman made DaCosta, as you mentioned, the first black woman director to top the box office after the film's initial release. And she is going to be, or is directing, The Marvels, which is a sequel to Captain Marvel, that is scheduled to be released in 2023. And at 31, she is the youngest director and the first black woman to helm a Marvel film. 
Um, so she's just breaking all kinds of barriers. She really is. She's killing it. She told herself as a filmmaker, when she would go to film festivals, she met a lot of female filmmakers who took them a little bit longer to release films. So they would release a film and then 10 years later come out with another one. And she told herself that she didn't want to be that type of filmmaker. She wanted to consistently and continually create films, which, I mean, has shown enough now. Once she came out with Candyman, I feel like the opportunities for her became endless. You know, she put a name out for herself. And also, she's a big uh, Marvel fan. She loves superheroes. So that was, I think, I think Marvel's is a good fit for her and her persona. I was sort of like, oh, what interesting, a Marvel film, because she's done um, a thriller, and then obviously Candyman is horror. So I was like, that seems like a little bit of a departure, but that's cool that she's a big fan of, of Marvel. Yeah, I was like really excited to hear about more of who she was. I, got, I did some digging, because I'm really intrigued by her. Like, she is such an inspiration to me. And what she was able to accomplish in her life. Like so far, like she's just 31. And she's done so much in the film industry that it just makes me like that more determined. Like I can do that. (laughs) She said, I'm really happy I got to make the Marvels film because it's like I genuinely can make a movie that doesn't have to be in black paint. And I feel like a lot of black filmmakers are asked to or expected to do that. So what do you feel from hearing that? Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, like, I think a lot of times the stories that we get to hear from Black filmmakers, Black creators, are often centered on, you know, oppression, the civil rights movement, slavery. And so I do think, like, a lot of times the industry will sort of pigeonhole Black creators and sort of the only films that they are that are greenlit or that get made are about those topics at least the ones that get acknowledged cuz like as a white person like I wouldn't be asked to make a film about you know something in my family's history that was really tragic or really difficult like I could just make a film you know like ladybird that's just like a coming of age film. And I don't think we see a lot of that like in the mainstream from black creators. I mean, we had Pariah, which like I love, and that's maybe one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it's a black story and, you know, race is a part of it, but it's not um, fully focused on like something like the civil rights movement or, or black pain, like DaCosta says. Yeah. Like, I think that Candyman was that movie for her where she was able to talk about gentrification, racial violence. But now Marvel's is obviously completely different and doesn't have to revolve around that. And to, like, step into another atmosphere, I think, is refreshing because you're able to tell other stories that don't have to do with pain. Yeah, or, like, that there's more to... I mean, this is, like, maybe going to sound dumb, but there's more to you know the black experience or you know being black in america than those stories that we typically see obviously those stories are important to hear and to amplify but i think the 
industry is hopefully getting to a point now where we're like there's so much more from from black people and other minorities too where it's like with queer stories it doesn't have to be just a coming out story it can just be like a character is gay or like a character is black you know exactly there's still a lot of changes that have to be done especially in storytelling and you know what i found interesting speaking of which she was saying in an interview, DeCosta was saying in an interview how her and Peel were the only people of color who were making executive decisions in the film, mm. right? It was just, I guess, different and difficult because why is there still not more people of color working in the entertainment industry and working as other positions in the crew right or that have that same executive power and Mm -hmm. say you know I was watching clips of her on set her directing on set and you know not to not to throw shade but there was just it was all white people like her and Mm -hmm. Peel were the only two black people on set and that just blows my mind because they're trying to make it seem that we're making a change and that there's more people of color in the entertainment industry and these two authoritative figures you know these two creators that have a name for themselves are helping that happen right that are really showing like change is happening but in reality the people that are standing behind them are all white creators and white decision makers Hmm. yeah that's a really good point when you talk about representation, right? Like, there's a conversation about who's on screen. And that's, like, step one. And what kind of roles they have on screen. Like, step (laughs) 1.5. And then step two is, like, who is telling the story. Like, who wrote the story, who's directing the story, all of that. Step three, though, and the really big one, that will affect steps one and two, are who is pulling the strings, you know, who are the producers, who are the executives, who are the decision makers that are saying this film can get made or this is who we're gonna hire, that type of thing. In all those elements, there's a lot of work to do, but especially in the step three section. And hopefully, you know, we can actually get there and not put on a show that change is happening you know I think this generation of filmmakers there's more diversity there's so many talented people that I've met that are creators and that are creating amazing films that do show that diversity and do show that change so it's coming it might not be in the (laughs) next two years but you know maybe in the next 10 years there's going to be definitely a big shift in the entertainment industry Yeah, I really hope so. And I think, too, it's about, like, you know, my work at at Nali, we talk about building the pipeline. Because we aren't just looking for someone to be a decision maker today. That's great, and we should do that. But also helping and making sure that the people, the decision makers, the filmmakers, whoever of tomorrow have the resources that they need to get to that place. Because that's been the problem before, where they didn't have the resources, so they weren't able to get, you know, a lot of people weren't able to get where they wanted to be, where they should be. So Mm -hmm. really making sure that that's a central goal is really important. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, there are definitely companies like Nelly who want to give the opportunity to creators for them to really, like, showcase their talents and their works. And that I'm, like, so appreciative of. But I think there's more people doing it. Like, not even just companies, but just individuals as well. And, like, if we all stick together and we all work as a team, I I think we could make this change happen. Like, actually do something about it. And like I said, a lot of things have been happening in the entertainment industry recently, especially like the tragedy that just occurred where mm-hmm. things are really, they're going to have to change. People are going to have to, you know, move in a different direction. So hopefully, you know, fingers crossed that, you know, we're, we're going to be at a better place and better stories are going to be told. But there's something interesting that I like learning about a filmmaker and it's where they get their inspiration from i love learning about what movies they have watched what they do tips and tricks and one that nia da costa does is she revisits apocalypse now which is by one of my favorite filmmakers francis ford coppola who i praise all the time i really admire him as a filmmaker and she revisits that film before shooting anything that's really interesting yeah when i learned about that i'm like you are a francis ford coppola fan like <laughs> you're you're on the same wavelength as me like i have to meet nia da costa yeah make it happen manifest <laughs> it nia if you're listening she of course is from new york because who isn't from new york (laughs) she grew up in harlem and now that i'm living in harlem right now i'm like oh where where in harlem do i live in the apartment (laughs) complex that you lived in and of course like every other filmmaker she attended nyu for college Mm -hmm. she got her master's in writing in london she went to europe to get her master's but she was directing some TV shows for a crime series at the time called Top Boy. I haven't heard of it before, nor have I watched it, but definitely will check it out to see her techniques. Maybe she has like a signature style. So as we mentioned, Candyman was produced and co-written by Jordan Peele. And it was also co-written and co-produced by Wynn Rosenfeld and co-produced by Ian Cooper. And I know Ian Cooper has worked with Peel on a lot of projects before this. One of the production companies involved in the making of the film was Monkey Paw Productions, which is Peel's company that also produced Get Out and Us. This is a quote from, I think, the film's Wikipedia, because I didn't know how to explain it myself, but I'll just read this. So plans for another Candyman film began in the early 2000s, with original director Bernard Rose, the guy who directed the 1992 movie, wanting to make a prequel film about Candyman and Helen's love. However, the studio turned it down and the project entered development hell. So basically, like, it's just sitting there. It's going through a lot of different production companies, development companies, but it's not, it doesn't seem like it's going to get made anytime soon. And then in 2018, Peel signed on as producer for the new film using his company, Monkey Paw Productions. And Universal Pictures and MGM also signed on. And DaCosta was brought on as director. 
2018. And then Candyman was filmed in August and September of 2019. And the film was set in Chicago. And it seems like they had some shots in Chicago, but mostly it was filmed in Los Angeles. Candyman was originally set to premiere in June of 2020, but this release date was of course delayed due to the pandemic. And the film was finally released on August 27th, 2021. And the film's budget was $25 million and it made $77 million at the box office. So getting into the cinematography of the film, my favorite part was the shadow puppets. Oh yeah. I thought that was a, such a nice touch to like creating such a eerie feel to the cinematography. And I, it gave me like an idea to recreate that somehow as well. But they had like professionals do the puppetry. Yeah. Like they had a, a good amount of people on to do that. So I don't know how I would personally do it. <laughs> But I thought that was, like, a really great idea. Whoever came up with it, that was spot on. Yeah, that was really cool. Like, very creative and, like, an interesting way to tell the backstory. And then also, like, very haunting and creepy to sort of open and close your movie with that. I also noticed that long shots were frequently used. There was a lot of like center shots done of like the protagonist and just focus on the background. They weren't just focusing on the protagonist. You're focusing on everything. Like everything was significant in the frame, if that makes sense. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I also really liked there were some like really cool exterior shots. Like um, it's really quick, but it's like beautiful. I love this shot of Anthony and Brianna are like waiting for the train but we get a shot that's like way above them and you get to see like the Chicago skyline and um, you know, the train station and everything and the colors are really beautiful. In general, like there were some really beautiful colors in this film, a lot of jewel tones, which is like really, you know, visually appealing, very rich. And I also really liked the scene where the art critic gets killed the first killing we do see like a pretty up close version of what happens but then sort of what I liked in the other scenes where people were killed by the Candyman, it wasn't a direct just like gory shot like this shot of the art critic was from outside her apartment building it's a super like modern all glass apartment and so we get to see her be dragged around by this invisible force and killed So I thought that was really effective, like, from afar. And then the bathroom scene, too. Like, we don't actually see any of the girls die. We see a little reflection briefly. But um, I just thought that was, like, really well done. Because you still got the effect, but you weren't, like... It didn't rely on the gore, I guess, which I always like. Which I liked. They were very creative with showing the action or the killing. I really enjoyed when Anthony starts transforming into Candyman. So you start seeing Candyman in his reflection. The fact that the movements were exactly alike 
So I'm wondering if there was like another actor or how they were able to like recreate that scene. I was like trying to figure it out. But how did they do it that that person like Candyman and him were doing the movements at the same time? That was very cool. I did really like that scene and I was like, oh my god, the hand thing is like that's what happened to Candyman. Um, So that sort of realization is like very chilling. I'm not really sure how they did that scene technically. I'm sure like someone would be able to tell you, would be able to guess. Um, I'm not that person, but I was sort of like, I guess the thematic significance of that scene, I was sort of like wondering because for a while I was thinking like, is he actually those first couple deaths? Like, is he in some way responsible for them? But I don't think that the movie wanted us to think that. But maybe it was his own questioning as, like, am I actually? And, like, because he's kind of losing touch with reality, he's like, am I the one who's responsible for these deaths? Um, I don't know. That was an interesting scene. Yeah, because he was provoking the lady that he went to go talk to about the art gallery and he was like say it like you should do it and obviously she does it and she gets killed but you see that after so you see like a long shot again of her in her room her getting like slashed and thrown around Mm -hmm. which was like another interesting shot they didn't redo the death scenes like they made each death unique and changed it up there was a, something else I wanted to point out. Oh, yeah. Did you notice that some scenes, when they would cut into, I guess, the next shot, it would switch to, like, an overhead view of the skyline, and but it was backwards? Yeah, yeah. The first, um, <laughs> when we, so we opened up the movie, not knowing anything about Candyman and the whole mirror thing, my boyfriend and I were like, oh, like, is there something wrong with this, like, copy or whatever of the movie? Like, is it all gonna be reflected like this? Because the initial, like, you know, the monkey paw, um, logo and everything, like, that's flipped when you first start the film. Um, but then we, like, actually started the real movie and we're like, okay, no, like, that's a purposeful choice. And then, yeah, I think during the opening credits, It's a really interesting um, series of shots, I guess, of these skyscrapers, I assume, in Chicago. And it looks like you're looking at them from below, kind of, because it looks like they disappear into the clouds. But, like, that's below you, I guess. Just the way that it shot the angle is, like, super interesting. And I was sort of, like, wondering how they accomplished that effect. I was really intrigued to find out and of course this happens a lot that when you have worked with someone in the past and you enjoy them and you enjoy their work you end up working with them again lo and behold the editor for Candyman is one of Nia DaCosta's friends from NYU yeah I mean obviously she's talented at capturing Headstrom um it's it's partially about talent, you know, the industry, and then also just knowing people. 
because that's really what's gonna get you like in the door it seems like yeah definitely you never know where your friends are gonna be at you know especially as a creator and I think as us like young filmmakers just starting out we hop on to like all different projects and we meet people and you don't know where that film's gonna go you know yeah I think the a lot of times people feel like networking is like oh I gotta make a good impression on my boss or on you know the higher-ups on whatever set or at whatever company I'm working for but there is a lot to be said for what do they call it like horizontal networking Mm -hmm. um like people who are on your same level because then you'll grow together and you'll look out for each other and yeah you'll hire each other or you'll help each other get jobs so you never know who you know right now who could end up getting you to edit a movie that ends up being number one at the box office like yeah seriously (laughs) though I also found some interesting facts about our main characters oh yeah yes so Yaya Abdul-Mateen who plays Anthony McCoy will be in the new Matrix film coming out oh we're having a crossover moment we're having a crossover (laughs) moment which is super exciting so I believe if I'm not mistaken, that the new movie is going to be out December 22nd. Yeah, right before Christmas. Yeah. So go check it out in theaters. Go check him out. He's killing it right now. He, I think, has already won an Emmy. Oh, nice. Yeah. He was incredible in this. I thought he, he did an awesome job. Yeah, he did. You know, I feel like people don't give actors enough credit for their techniques and just their believability. Like I didn't feel like he was acting and that's what I really like is that I can't spot out your acting and that I forget I'm watching a film. And I forgot I was watching a film. Like I really got sucked in by his acting. You know, I as much as I love like our A-list actors who are always, you know, nominated for awards and stuff, like there is also something to be said for casting someone who's a little bit more of a newcomer like or a little bit of more of a new face one because they're just giving somebody else who's amazing a shot but also like I think it does kind of help the believability sometimes of a film because like if I'm watching a film and I know like that's whoever that's Robert Downey Jr then I'm just thinking about Robert Downey Jr during the film you know as as much as he's like a great actor yeah and a lot of newcomers like they haven't gotten the credit that they deserve obviously they haven't been given the opportunity they haven't been given that big break that they've been looking for that they've been working so long for so I mean he's been killing it he's been getting to be in a lot of more you know big roles like bigger roles watch he's gonna become like the next uh, Michael B. Jordan oh I could see that Mm yeah But another fun fact about another one of our main characters in this film. So Tayana Paris, who plays Brianna Cartwright, she's going to be in the new film that Nia DaCosta is directing, The Marvels, in 2023. Nia DaCosta was probably like, I love what you did here. Time for you to come with me in The Marvels. And that's not the first time that we hear 
a director bringing on an actor or an actress that they really like. Was it um, Karen Kusama? No, or Catherine Hardwick. I think it was Catherine Hardwick who cast Nikki Reed a lot. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's true. And it happens all the time. Like, I mean, we just talked about Lady Bird. Saoirse Ronan's been in Greta Gerwig's two solo films so far. She probably will be in her third one. I don't know. Actually, no, maybe she won't be in Barbie. But like, I think a lot of times that happens where directors and actors develop a very strong bond because it is such a special relationship. And like the director trusts the actor, the actor trusts the director. And so, I mean, that makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's nice. See, it's networking. (laughs) (laughs) I think the dialogue was amazing. I wasn't surprised given that Jordan Peele was co-writing. And I think, you know, there were a couple monologues throughout the film from Anthony and his mom and the guy who owned the laundromat. But I didn't think they felt like too heavy handed which I always appreciate, like those can be really hard to pull off. And I think, you know, the writing team did a really good job there. Some of my issues that I've sort of hinted at throughout with the story, I think like there was a lot of really good stuff there, a lot of really great ideas. And some of it got a little bit overcomplicated. Like I think they could have trimmed down the story a bit, made it a little bit, I guess, streamlined even though it's a it's a pretty short movie, it's like 90 minutes, but there were a few things where I just, it didn't all tie together. And so I was kind of like, why was that there in the first place? So some of my main questions <laughs> after watching the film, which maybe I'll come back and be like, you're a dumbass. You're totally wrong on that. Like, obviously that makes sense. So like, I don't fully understand still how the Candyman operates. Why does he need to be reborn because it seemed like he is like pretty alive and well once the story gets passed around so like why did anthony need to be brought on to the candy man or whatever or, or become the new candy man and also like why did anthony need to be physically transformed into the candy man like with the hook hand and everything wouldn't his spirit have become part of the candy man regardless maybe he needed to you know when you need to step into someone's shoes I think he needed to be recreated like reformed so supposedly he was killed off or they thought he was killed off but his spirit still lingered and that spirit needed to be reborn in order to do that he needed that baby who was supposed to be the key to his rebirth or whatever the case may be. I forget kind of what happened. <laughs> um, but he needed him because he was a key in order to have that access, right? I don't know what necessarily Anthony held or why he was so special or why he needed a baby that I didn't really understand. But once he was bit by the bee, I think that was, I think the bee is one like part of the spirit, the curse, right? Yeah, yeah. And then it just started, like, taking over him because it was an infection. That Mm -hmm. curse just was infecting his whole body. And then the guy who was, I guess, helping Candyman, I think he was possessed in some way 
as well maybe when Mm. he was a kid when he first saw him for the first time and that's when you know his spirit just remained that's kind of what I interpreted from it yeah no that's that's helpful insight I didn't think about how the guy at the laundromat was maybe also possessed as well based on his experiences with the candy man like because I was like why is this guy all of a sudden like trying to get candy man up and running sometimes I have this issue with movies where like you don't want to do too much exposition or too much disclosure of what's going on but then sometimes at the end of a film like the second or third act there is like an exposition dump which happened a little bit in this film with Anthony's mom and then the laundromat guy at the end I think if earlier on or throughout we had had little hints at that and maybe that would have given us like little cookie crumbs and that would have given us a little more information and then we would have it would have made sense at the end so this is my again like I always feel like when I'm critiquing a screenplay it's like yeah you know of course like I couldn't do that but these are my notes and I feel that like you wanted those hints you wanted to know what was gonna happen but I think that is the style that Jordan Peele writes is that he doesn't want to leave those cookie crumbs he wants to leave you guessing and keep you attentive to the story there's pros and cons to it I get it like I'm that type of person who wants more like I'm like I'm I'm guessing like I'm still wondering like I still want to know more of the story but I think that's why they purposely do it is because they want you to keep wondering they want you to kind of create the story for yourself as well yeah and I guess that is a balance and like there's it's certainly up to personal preference like how much you want to be you know hinted at and like trying to solve the mystery yourself and how much you want it to just be like surprises I guess and I'm the kind of person who's like I want to try to figure it out myself while I'm watching you know like I'm like Nancy Drew with my little magnifying glass but it's just it's a it's a personal preference thing I guess but yeah I mean we can talk some there were so many interesting themes in this film and so many interesting I guess conversations that it brought to the forefront Yes. So one of the themes that we were talking about was the gentrification. So we see in this film that the projects have been, the Caprini Green houses have been torn down. There are some that are still remaining that are obviously abandoned. And those are the ones that Anthony goes in, he like sneaks into and looks around and is trying to take pictures of it to get the like inspiration. But This shows the cycle of gentrification because it's like it's white people forcing black people to move into the projects and then white people take them out and then the cycle repeats itself, which I have seen a lot recently, especially in New York City, where they are creating these luxury apartments in these poor neighborhoods and they have been tearing down a lot more buildings and rebuilding them and making the price go higher in the areas, which pulls black people out of their community because they can't afford living there anymore because they're raising the prices up because they want to gentrify it and put more white people there. And I know I'm saying a lot of like white and black people, but like, I mean, that's that's how it is. I don't know any other polite way to say it. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, I mean, gentrification obviously affects like other communities of color poorer communities like 
it isn't simply a white and black issue, but like that is central to the conversation as it should be. But yeah, I thought that that monologue that Anthony had, he was talking to the art critic lady and I don't, she had some like messed up view about gentrification and like artists role in it and stuff and the project. And then he was like, but who creates the projects? And basically saying like the city and, you know, white decision makers and big businesses and stuff, they're the ones who are creating the projects and then who are in turn then creating gentrification like decades later and basically outpricing people from their own neighborhoods and like forcing people to leave and find somewhere else to live. And it's like you're uprooting their entire life. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times to these luxury condos, at least at first, they don't even all sell. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like gentrification is it's like a poison that seeps in. And it starts with just one little area and then it spreads throughout an entire neighborhood. And then people can't live there any longer. And like they didn't even want to be there in the first place. So it's just, it's fucked up. It was the only place they could afford to be. Exactly. Exactly. I, there's like no other way around it. Like I get the, the fact that they're trying to make neighborhoods better. You know, I'm using like air quotations. I don't think that building luxury condos and getting people out of their neighborhoods does anyone justice. It's not going to fix anything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the question is like, who are you making the neighborhood better for? Because if you actually cared about the people who lived in the neighborhood, typically poor black and brown people, you would have better schools better public service like there would be you know buses or other forms of public transportation that specifically went close to those areas a lot of times like those areas don't have access to public transportation and like people are too poor to have a car so then like it's very limited the places where they can go for a job and then that limits their economic situation along with you know underfunded schools and public programs it's cl it's clearly not like gentrification is just greedy developers and you know the city wanting to like make more money at the expense of the people who live there yeah no it's it's just crazy like i know that this happens all the time and, and i feel sorry for anyone who has fallen victim to gentrification um, and who have lost their homes because they've gotten kicked out or they've gotten bought out. Yeah, homes and businesses too. Yeah, exactly. I know another topic is police brutality and corruption. So um, in a flashback to the laundromat's owner's childhood, we see a horde of police descent on the original Candyman and learn from a voiceover that they beat him to death. And we talked about Brianna being in the back of a squad car where one of the policemen actually tells her the situation can go two ways. She can either testify that Anthony lunged at one of the cops and the shooting was justified, or she can go down as an accomplice. So it displays the corruption of the police force, like right then and there. Mm -hmm. She's like between a rock and a hard place. She doesn't really have, like either she 
is betraying Anthony and like not telling the truth and saving herself or she is not saving herself. Like, I mean, both of them, she'd have to lie because neither of those situations were actually what happened. Because they said that they would frame it as he was doing something to her. Like, they thought he was dangerous and was endangering her when clearly, like, he was just laying down, like, on her lap, I think. Mm Because, like, clearly he wasn't gonna hurt her. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, like, that type of shit happens all the time where people are, they don't have any power in the situation and they're forced to choose between two bad options. Exactly. Is there anything else you want to point out? Yeah, I just thought, especially that last thing that we see with the shadow puppets and um, throughout the stories of the other men who have been unjustly killed and then my interpretation is that their souls have sort of joined the Candyman and sort of that as like an analogy for perpetual white brutality against black people actually having consequences and that like that type of violence and that type of history doesn't just disappear as much as some people would like it to and the trauma like lives on yeah that's why I feel like you feel that sympathy for him because you understand and you you want to get back at the people who hurt him you want to get back at like the evil people And that's why the police getting killed off by him at the end, I felt like justice was served because of what they were going to do to Brianna and what they did to Anthony. Right, absolutely. I think the film also has some interesting things to say about Black art needing to be attached to violence and brutality to be acknowledged or, or appreciated in the mainstream. So like the white art critic is very critical of Anthony's art initially, but once, you know, after the the deaths of those two people, once it's tied to that, she becomes intrigued. And also his work is tied to the brutality that the first Candyman experienced. But yeah, like, the film kind of seems to question, like, the ethics of making art that is tied to these horrific events, particularly if it garners the artist fame. So like after those first killings at the art museum or at the art gallery, Anthony is just happy that they said his name on TV and he doesn't really seem super affected by what actually happened. But then again, like him as a black man in the art world, like having some kind of violence or brutality connected to His work is what is required for him to really gain any meaningful recognition. So I think it's like pointing out sort of this like corner that Black artists have been painted into. And then I think too, the film is like self-reflective because it is a film by Black artists talking about racial violence. And there's a quote that, um, we've been saying the guy from the laundromat and I think his name is (laughs) Coleman. Yeah, Coleman, Coleman. Um, I don't know if they even ever say it, but it was on IMDb. He says, they love our stuff, but they don't love us. You know, black art has been so influential, especially on American art and American life. And it's been appropriated, you know, in a million different ways. But 
there is not that larger societal care for black people. Well, tying back into anyone who was saying Candyman, I just thought of this, and I don't know why. We were talking about the the art gallery lady, right? And how she paid mine to Anthony once, like, the people died at the art gallery. The people who died at the art gallery were white, and the main guy had, like, issues with Anthony. And it, it always had to go with them being rude to people of color. Mm-hmm. Then um, the girl in the bathroom, there was a black girl in the stall who was getting teased by the girl who got killed, right? Yeah, all the girls, all the white girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it was getting teased by all the white girls, and and then the police officers, they were white, and they were going to attack Brianna. So all of these people who were victims were actually the attackers of black people. So that made you feel less sympathetic when they died. Yeah, yeah, you were never like, oh my god, I'm so, like... Because either they were my, They were all minor characters, I think. And also they had done something that was, like, questionable or they had been racist or made some kind of racially charged comment. I think it's also subverting that trope of, like, oh, if there's a black person in a horror film, they're going to be the first one to die. Mm-hmm. Because other than Anthony... And I guess he was kind of resurrected or reborn as Candyman. No black people died in this movie. Yeah, exactly. A phrase that's repeated throughout the film is say his name, like say the Candyman's name. And, you know, it's a pretty clear parallel to the Say Their Names campaign, which is an effort to remember black victims of police brutality and or white supremacy and to demand and create change. Uh, And we will link their website in the episode description. And then I also felt like after watching the movie that this movie had been made like post summer 2020 because like I was thinking about how Anthony's girlfriend's named Brianna and immediately I thought of Brianna Taylor and just, I mean, Jordan Peele has been making films about like race in the U.S. for longer than 2020, but I just thought this film seemed especially, like, close to the 2020 protests, but, you know, as we said, it was filmed in 2019. That just shows how prevalent the themes of the film are and that discussions about violence against Black people obviously in no way started or ended in 2020. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Film Spill, a movie night podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Pinterest at Film Spill Pod. Tell a friend about the podcast if you like and leave a review for us on Apple Podcast. That way, other people will find Film Spill too. Check out our past episodes if you haven't already. There's sure to be a few on other films you've seen or want to hear us talk about. And you can support the podcast at Film Spill Pod on PayPal. Special thanks to Onyx Films for promoting us. You can check out Onyx's other projects at onyx-films.com. The editing was done by me, Jackie.
And thank you so much to our animator who did our brand new animations. Her name is Adelina Andrews, and you can check out her art and maybe hire her for another gig. Her website is adelinaandrews.com, and her Instagram is at Addie underscore art underscore. And we will put both of those in the episode description so you guys can check her out. Until next time, don't cry over spilled film.